0: talking about authority and understanding authority this morning. So let me just give you some definitions to work from. Authority is power to influence or command, specifically to influence or command thoughts, opinions, and behaviors. Authority can be vested in a person or persons who then operate, they go about doing what they're called to do in that authority. Think of a a police officer who, in and of himself, has no authority, but having gone through the proper training, having graduated from the academy, having been deputized, now wields the authority of law enforcement. Okay, Part, Part of living in society means there are rules that we follow, and the presence of these rules in turn means that there are authority figures who see to it that the rules are followed Otherwise, a corrective action is in order. Now, this is going to be hard for us. If if you're a younger person coming up in Western civilization at this moment in time, that's not the case. You can do 100 miles an hour on the freeway, and the police won't chase you. It's crazy. We're becoming a lawless society. But this is what authority is supposed to be, according to the Bible. And, And so living in society means there are rules we follow, um, and, and, those are, and authorities are there to enforce those rules which keep us alive and keep us from hurting each other and, and all sorts of things that are good for us. In fact, Paul addresses this at one point in Romans uh, 13. And I'll just read you the first uh, four verses of that chapter. I won't read too much. But Paul says, you know, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority that it, except that from God and those, those authorities that exist have been instituted by god therefore whatever or excuse me whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for for rulers are not a terror to good conduct well they're not supposed to be <laughs> they can be they're they're not supposed to be a terror to good conduct but to bad conduct And so Paul asks the question rhetorically, he says, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you receive his approval for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid because he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, if you were with us all the way back, I mean, probably a year and a half, two years ago when we were in the book of Daniel then you know that we parsed out Romans 13. We saw that that is not a blanket edict to only ever always obey governing officials. And I, can, and I can tell you right out of the Bible why. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they disobeyed the king of Babylon. Daniel disobeyed the command that he should not pray to the Lord his God in full view in his window. The Bible's full Of disobedience to earthly rulers, when those appointed rulers run afoul of God's laws and his design. So I'll just say that if Romans 13 was an absolute edict from God with this rigid interpretation whereby we all have to obey regardless of the issue, regardless of the situation, then every Old Testament prophet every single New Testament apostle, Christians who continue to worship under the reign of the Roman Empire after being told not to, and even our brothers and sisters around the world today, and especially in places like China, they they are disobeying God. And that's not the case. So our understanding of Romans 13 has has to align with God's heart in, in this reality. So we, we take passages like this in context to better understand the delegated authority God's given to humanity. And so maybe we should just ask the question again: like, what is authority? Authority is the right to assign tasks and responsibilities, to allocate and direct resources, to make decisions, to enforce compliance. And God is the source of all authority. He's the source of authority. Yes, authority can be misused. Yes, it can be applied in in really terrible ways, but God is the source of authority. By virtue of who he is as the creator of all things, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. That means he can do whatever he wants to do. He has all the power, all the authority, and yet he entrusts roles of leadership to individuals, to humans made in his image in the family, in the church, in the workplace, in government. And he's decided to give humanity limited authority that we use for good sometimes, and we use for evil sometimes. So my prayer this morning, with this definition of authority kind of really resting heavy on us as we go to the text, uh, my prayer is that we would come away with some new insights about God's authority and also the authority specifically that he's designated to the church. He's designated to us. So if you're with us, uh, if you've been with us, you know we're going through the harmony of the Gospels. We're looking at the four Gospels as they occur chronologically in real time. And this morning we're in, uh, in in my harmony of the Gospels, says section 73. Uh, I realized this week talking to some of you, we don't all have the same section numbers. And so that's been confusing. So I'll just say Matthew 8 uh, verses 1 and then 5 to 13. So let me read the Uh, I'll read verse one, some commentary, but we're going to do the parallel passage in Luke. So I'm going to read through Matthew and then move on to Luke, and then we'll open it up a little bit. So Matthew 8, 1 says, when he came down from the mountain, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And if you remember last week where we left off, the reason for the great crowds following him was really plainly explained in the text. He was teaching the people with authority. He had authority in the way he taught, not like their scribes and teachers. Those guys were, were quoting the best ideas of other guys who'd come before them, who were quoting the best ideas of other guys who'd come before them, and they were lacking authority. They weren't saying, this is what God says. They're saying, this is what this person says about what this person says about what that person said like 150 years ago. There was no authority there. But Jesus is speaking the very words of God. And in and, and point of fact, he's the word made flesh. And, and this is the most spiritually invigorating thing these people had ever known since God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, imagine that. Moses says, uh, it, it was so much that even Moses trembled in fear. And so they've all been longing to hear God speak. And here he is in the flesh speaking. Verse 5 says when they entered Capernaum a centurion came forward to him appealing to him Lord my servant is lying paralyzed at home suffering terribly and he said to him I will come and heal him but the centurion replied Lord I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof but only say the word and my servant will be healed for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said, excuse me, the centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And his servant was healed at that very moment. So, again, we have the parallel passage in Luke's gospel. Let's go ahead and unpack that. We'll take these two together. And we got to understand as we go to Luke 7, 1 through 10, um, the cultural realities regarding the relationship between Rome and and Israel. Remember that the Romans hated the Jews. They were seen by Rome as this backwater, backwards, hillbilly population of uneducated, superstitious, stubborn people. It's like they all came from the mountains of Western Washington or something. I don't know. Oh, sorry. 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 I'm I'm a Georgia boy, so I I know what hillbilly means. Okay. I know. Um, so it would be similar to the way in which many leftist college professors see their homeschool Christian undergrad students, right? It's like stubborn fundamentalist. Um, we put the fun in fundamentalism. So uh, Luke, Luke 7, 1 through 10, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, so he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum and now a centurion who had a servant was sick and who was at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he's the one who built our synagogue. So let's stop here and and just talk about this for a minute, because the Jews hated the Romans. It wasn't just the Romans hating the Jews. The Jews hated the Romans. And yet here you see a Roman who has loved the Jews. And and it says it's because he's a God-fearing man. See, anyone who truly fears God ought to love Israel. For they are the very means by which God's word, both his written word and his living word, have come into the world. So, to to modern Christians who do not love the Jews or Israel, take warning. God has not stopped loving them. Not that Israel is perfect, God's not done with them yet, not by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, he's not finished with Israel. But this Gentile centurion loved the Jews enough to build them a synagogue in Capernaum. And the Jewish leaders respected him. And they admired him enough to, to go to Jesus, whom they hated, to ask a favor. And that speaks really to the high regard they have for this Gentile centurion. But before we go further, any further, let's unpack what a centurion was. Because centurions were Roman military commanders of units of 100 men, right? Century is 100 years. They're hundred cents in a dollar, right? Centurion, you've got that, that first part is a hundred. So they're captains of groups of a hundred soldiers. And um, you didn't get that position in the Roman legions uh, by popular election or by brown nosing your commanding officer. You got there by proving yourself in battle. So this guy is, he's tough. And yet, that this servant is valued by him, tells us something about his character as a person. It tells us he's different from your average Roman centurion stationed abroad in the empire, away from home and family. He's, he's invested personally in building uh, a religious uh, you know, a synagogue for the Jews in that town. And here the Jewish leaders come to Jesus. Their strategy now is going to be to play upon the centurion's worthiness. We're going we're gonna to build him up as somebody who's worthy to have Jesus do this thing for him. Was he worthy or not worthy? Hold on to that question, okay? But note the contrast. The Jewish leaders argue that this man is worthy to have this done for him. So this is an obligatory tone that they're trying to leverage on Jesus. And I think that's typical of anybody who works out of a, of a, of a works-based faith, Right? When you, when you believe it's up to you to do enough to please God, this is kind of the way you approach life, this works-based faith. It always becomes about your performance. You've got to show your worth because it's not intrinsic to who you are. You've got to demonstrate that you're worthy. And, and so here's a little warning for you. You know that your walk with Jesus is hurting when you find yourself feeling like God is obligated to you because of what you've done. Or what you haven't done. Well, he owes me because I haven't sinned today. It's like, no, you just did. Did you breathe today? Okay, you sinned. Okay. It was, we've got we've to take this into ourselves. It's an indication that we're drifting away from his word and, and from him. We don't obligate God to anything, We don't, we can't obligate God. But nevertheless, this is precisely the approach of the Jewish elders. He's worthy to have you do this, Jesus. He deserves it. That subtle entitlement mentality that creeps in on all of us, it's especially nasty, by the way, when you're in ministry. Oh, I hate it. And and I've had it happen to me so many times. This man had spent this large sum of his own money, putting it where his mouth was and claiming that he loved Israel and he loved the Jewish people. So let's keep going with verse six. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you but just say the word and my, 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 let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then... And when those who have been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So contrast this attitude of this Gentile—he's a professional soldier—with the the attitude of the Jewish elders. This guy, the centurion, saying, "I don't deserve. I'm I'm not worthy." And here are the here are the elders saying he deserves this, Jesus. He's worthy, Jesus. You got to do this thing. You see the contrast here. He says, I, I didn't even presume to come to you. You're the God of heaven. And who am I? I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Coming to you to ask something of you is, is, is beyond, if I'm asking anything beyond just even the air I'm already breathing, it's is, is going to be presumption. Just, just say the word, Lord, and it will be done. In other words, this Roman centurion is saying, I get it. I understand authority. And I understand who this person is. He's the God of heaven and earth. Now, a faithful servant under authority doesn't have to be watched continually because they understand the concept of answering to someone higher than themselves. So they do their task faithfully. When someone really has authority, they don't have to micromanage those under them. So so uh, here's the application point right now. Just the, the husbands, dads, fathers, look at me. You, you don't have to constantly remind your wife and kids, I'm the head of this house. Okay. If you go around, and I, and I had a season of life where I did this, and God, he spanked me pretty, pretty good. You go around going, I'm the head of this house. If you've got to say that all the time, you're not. Okay? You're not. It's, it's just, you either live in the role of, of husband, father in your home like Jesus, or you wield it, your title like a weapon when you get frustrated and things don't go your way. Choose, choose to be like Jesus, gentlemen. We don't need to wield that with, like a weapon, okay? But the picture being portrayed here is one of God's grace being poured out versus an approach that attempts to earn it, even by extreme devotion. And the problem is that Scripture tells us no one has any merit to boast. We can't obligate God. We can't do enough good stuff to make God, you know, obliged to us. In fact, Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, uh, verses 1 to 10. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, which is another title for for Lucifer or Satan. "You You were following the spirit that's now at work in all the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God... See, I, think, I think those might be the two best words in the whole Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, not because we obliged him with our goodness... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here we go, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so he says it again. Paul said he can't stop talking about grace. He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. You didn't, you didn't make that happen. That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of your efforts and your works so that nobody can boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That only happens when you get saved That only happens when you confess your sins to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to save me, to redeem me, to make me your own. And then the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And then you're able to do good works that are pleasing to God. Not as a way to earn his love, but as a result of his love in you. And you you just can't argue that you've done enough to obligate God to anything. It doesn't work that way. He can't be bought. He can't be obligated. Why was Jesus amazed at the centurion's faith. And, 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 I, and I think just, you know, it's there in the subtext, disappointed by the disciples' lack of faith. The centurion was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And yet he had explicit trust that Jesus could do whatever he chose to do, whatever he said he would do. The disciples knew Jesus better than the centurion did. And yet they were fearful. The centurion had trust and confidence in Jesus' ability, his authority to heal the servant. And Jesus is absolutely astounded by the faith and understanding of this Gentile man that surpasses anything he'd seen among his own covenant people. That's where this man's faith was. He knew his sin in the light of Christ's holiness. And again, remember his approach to the request. I'm not worthy. Not just unworthy for you, to ask you this, but unworthy to have you come into my house, he says that's clear recognition recognition of who Jesus is. And Jesus takes delight in this man's faith. And yes, the miracle happens, but I don't even think the miracle is the point of the passage. It's not really the point. The point is faith manifested in a clear understanding of the power and authority of Jesus. We've got to put our faith in Jesus and understand his power and authority. Jesus affirms that this is the case when he says, for the benefit of listening Jewish ears about many coming from the East and the West, right? To dine with Abraham, to feast with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, many Gentiles will come from the East and the West to dine at table with Abraham. And you got to know the Jewish religious leaders over there are like, what did he say? What? Dine at table with Abraham? How dare he? But the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, wouldn't be getting in simply by virtue of their pedigree. And that's what they thought. We're Jews. God loves us because of who we are. That's not how it works. It's going to require faith and understanding about authority. Okay? So let's keep rolling on. Luke 7. Let's go 11 to 17. So soon afterward, he he went to a town called Nain, And his disciples had a great crowd that went with him. And and he came near to the gate of the town. And behold, there was a man who had died, who was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And then when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. The, The word compassion, I love this word in the Greek text. It's shplagnitsomai. That's just a fun word. I'm just really feeling splagnitzumai today, man. I don't think I can come into work. Uh, you know. It's just this heaviness. It just keeps you from really wanting to engage in anything. It's just this weight on you. So he had, he had compassion on her. And so he says to her in verse uh in verse 14, he says, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So we read here that a dead man was being carried out of the house. He's the only son of this widow woman. And and so now with him dead, understand in that culture, she has no male relative to be her covering, to be her protection, to be her provider. Uh, There were were many people present weeping with her, knowing that she's got a struggle ahead of her just to make ends meet. And she's an older woman. and and It's it's just a bad situation for her. In this context, we read that Jesus has compassion on her. He stops the procession. He raises her son back to life just by speaking a command. And here's another demonstration of the authority that Jesus possesses. It's about authority. This man comes back. Amen. Amen. It's about authority. This man comes back to life when Jesus speaks. And this crowd is seized with the fear of the Lord. They're even putting Jesus on par with the prophets of old. And some others are rightly saying that God is among them. They don't know how right they are. The fame of Jesus is spreading like wildfire. This, this scene uh, speaks to the relationship between authority and compassion. Do so we think of authority as this hammer that we wield? But here's authority and compassion. You know, a person can have one or the other, but ideally those two should go hand in hand. If one has compassion, but doesn't have the authority to act, then compassion doesn't go any further than mere words. Or if somebody has authority but no compassion, that person will abuse the power that he or she's been given. So a person needs both compassion and authority to make a difference for good. We need both. And so here's what I'd say this morning. Just three three summary points um, from this text. Number one is we fear authority unless we have it. I don't like authority unless it's mine. I like my authority. Aren't we like that? Are we wired like that? That's our default, right? I don't like authority unless I have it. In Scripture, the word we translate as authority is often translated in English as power. And we, I like having power. I like telling people what to do. I don't like being told what to do, right? This is, our, this is kind of the, the essence of American culture at this moment in history? Why do we despise authority? Well, to answer that question, we've got to go back to the Garden of Eden. We've got to go back to the first temptation that Satan ever whispered. You know what he whispered? He whispered a question. He called God's goodness into question. He said, did God really say? Is that what he really said? Are you sure about that? And Eden, the one who had all authority, had delegated some of it to the humans that he had made in his image. You read that text in Genesis 3, it doesn't take our first parents very long to succumb to the evil one's temptation, vested mainly in the lie about God withholding something good from us. He wasn't withholding anything good from us. Satan used this ploy to convince humanity that God was holding out that he wasn't really a good authority to be under. And we've been a wreck ever since. We, we are a hot mess. People are just a hot mess. And, and now the general disposition of everyone on the planet is to want authority but not to want to be under it. That's a result of sin. We are rebellious to the core, having distrusted the God who breathed life into us and having listened to and believed our enemy instead of our God. We're in a bad spot. Have you heard the phrase, power corrupts? What does absolute power do? No. (laughs) I set you up for that one. I would suggest to you that that's not true. Power does not corrupt. Power reveals Power offers you the affords you the opportunity to do what you could not previously do and live out the, the sin of our hearts. It reveals. Power supplies the means to live out what's already within us so that it's seen more clearly and what's within us is not pretty. I said a moment ago, we fear authority unless we have it. But if we're wise, we will have a healthy fear of authority and wield it in, in the hopes of not misusing it. If, if we're in a position of authority, we will wield that authority in, in a proper way under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ works so diligently in us to change our character as born again Christians. So, so that we, we're our starting point of our Christian lives, you know, we're born again. And as we gain more stature and understanding and maturity, he gives us more authority to do the things he calls us to do. But it's a It's a growth curve, right? And this is why we need that great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness, our innate distrust of authority for his faithfulness as our authority. Our desire to rule others in exchange for coming under his rule and authority, knowing that we're going to rule the nation. Did you guys know this? Do you even know this? Did you know that the Bible says that in the age to come, we're going to rule the nations? We're going to reign and rule with Jesus. Like, I don't know what what part of the world, like the the redone world that he's going to assign me to, but I find that fascinating and exciting and a little bit terrifying. But we'll have perfect bodies and we'll be glorified in his presence and he's going to assign us to reign and rule all over the earth with him for a thousand years. That's incredible to me. That's incredible to me. This life is our trading ground for the next life. Okay? So... What do we say? We said um, we fear authority unless we have it. And then here's number two, as we wrap up, God's authority is for our good. His authority is for our good. Our, our concepts of power and authority are upside down from Jesus's version. We see these concepts as a- advantageous to ourselves when they work good for us. or so they're a- advantageous for us. We like them. And when they're not, we don't. But God's power and authority is not divorced from his love and grace. It's not divorced from his character. He wields his power and authority for good, not personal gain. Well, what does he have to gain from us? <laughs> we don't have anything to offer. He's not looking to gain from us. He wields in his power and his authority for good. And, and in that ultimate way, he's not like any other authority you've ever known. He, he is love and he is authority combined in one person Perfectly. God's authority is a covering that he provides for us to protect us. You know, the fig leaves that we sowed for ourselves in the garden cannot hide who we really are in our sinfulness. That was a lame attempt to hide who we are. So what he does, what God does when he comes into our lives, when we put our faith in Jesus alone, is that he begins to change us fundamentally from the inside out. He changes who we are, and then he changes what we are by his grace and his working in us. When we come under his authority and we receive his love and compassion in order to pass them along to other people. So then, ministry flows out of the life change that happens to us. If what you're doing in the name of King Jesus does not flow from life change that's happening to you, then I would suggest to you that maybe you're in the flesh and it's not really going to come to much. We need to let the spirit flow through us to, to change who we are so that we can impact the lives of others look at the reality of the faith of the centurion. This guy loved when everybody else on both sides of that Roman Jew divide hated each other. He he loved. He loved the Jews. He loved Israel. He loved his slave. Love is the essence of faith. It's the evidence of faith. Especially love that crosses man-made barriers to express itself in ways that honor Jesus. He, he recognized Jesus' authority. He was eager to embrace that authority because he saw and recognized it was rooted in love. So, so let me just let God's word drive this point home. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved. Again, it's not, not your, your own doing. It's not your works. It's not your effort. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. Now that word in Greek is poiema. And it means a masterpiece. It's like going to the great museums in Europe and seeing all of the great masterpieces and works of art. Going, wow, that's incredible. And this is what Jesus says about us. I'm shaping you. If you're submitted to me, if you put your faith in me, my spirit is in you, working, shaping you into a masterpiece of grace. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, not to, not to gain salvation, but as a result of salvation. 1 John 5, three. Listen to what the Apostle John says. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. See, God's commandments are rooted in his love. And when we have the love of God in us because the Holy Spirit lives in us, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy things to, to, to try to, oh, I gotta carry this thing all day long. I gotta love people. I hate people. That's No, it's like, oh, I love people. I'm happy to be here. I love you, I love you. It's a love fest, right? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Paul, again, to the Philippian church in chapter two, he says, Therefore, my beloved, the people that I love, I love you guys. As you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Man, work. Let, let God work in you. You join him in that working. Do ministry. Love people. Share the gospel. Minister to people. And this ultimate authority for us uh, for us in this life, this final standard of what is true, ultimately, you know, it's God's word. We we can pray to God. Sometimes it's hard to hear on the other end of the, that line, you know. It's, it feels like a one-way conversation, even though God hears us, he is working and he is speaking to us. But the way he speaks to us is his word. It's his word. Truth is, you know, truth is that which conforms to the mind of God. And you can't know truth apart from God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there you go. We, we believe things about God's revelation to us. I don't know how much of the Bible you've read or are familiar with, but when you go back to the Old Testament, we read things that are true. We believe that a donkey talked. We believe that a serpent spoke. We believe that a man survived in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and was spit up on the shore. So that's ridiculous. Oh no, it gets worse. We believe that a man was dead for three days and came back to life. But if you don't recognize God's word as your authority, those things are going to be absurd to you. They're going to be absurd. People who want to allegorize or simply dismiss things in the Bible, in their case, the authority has become themselves, the individual, not the Scriptures. But those things listed out are easy to believe if you begin with the God who created all things. God made everything. He breathed out the stars. Okay, donkey's talking, not such a big deal. That an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God created the universe, that's our starting point. Or that, or you can go with this one, if you'd rather, an infinitesimally small speck of compressed matter blew up and the resulting chaos and the random collision of molecules resulted in all the order and symmetry and beauty that you see around you. That's, it's so, it becomes so clear. It becomes so clear. See, it's, it's all about authority. We talk about power, but but it's really about authority. And God has all the authority, and he delegates some of it to us. We fear authority unless we have it, and God's authority is for our good. And here's the last thing I would say this morning. If you're a born-again Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, he has deputized you. He has deputized you. Never, never, ever forget the Great Commission. Jesus says, go in his love and compassion and make disciples of all nations. So we're not operating in our authority. We're operating in his authority. We come in the name of Jesus and we bring the gospel to those who don't know it. And you might say, but I just don't know if I can love that way. I mean, what are people going to think if I start telling them about Jesus? And then your very next thought should be, well, I, I don't actually have the power to love in that way in and of myself. And then you'd be exactly right. And that brings us to the crux of these passages this morning because it's Jesus' goodwill that you and I understand His power and His authority because our power and authority to love and cross barriers don't come from within ourselves. They come from Him. And if we're going to obey the Great Commission, if we're going to take Him to our neighbors, then we have to operate in His power. We, we, have, we have to put down this idea that it's in our flesh, it's in our effort, Right? It's not. We're not powerful enough. We cannot in ourselves be worthy of this calling. Apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can never be faithful enough. Scripture says we can't even love God. We love him because he first loved us. And now he's placed us under his authority. He's given us power and his spirit. And we can love if we recognize that we're under his authority, then we're filled with the power to do so. So let me just read The Great Commission to you one more time. I feel like I I just want to read the Great Commission every week. Matthew 28 18 to 20. Jesus came to his disciples, and this is what he said. He said, All authority, not some, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. What did he just do? He deputized his guys. And every Christian who's converted to the faith since. The apostles are deputized to go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the ending of the age. Wow, what a promise. That has never for one second in any context ceased to be the mission and direction of God's people. Even in the midst of persecution, Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us. So obedience is the order of the day. That obedience, let's be honest, it might get you, I don't know, uh, fired. Obedience to Jesus could get you fined. In some countries, it could get you beaten or caned, incarcerated or killed. But the question that you and I have to wrestle with before God in this moment in history is this. Is he worth it? is he worth it? Are we going to obey Jesus? If we're not fulfilling the great commission, what are we doing? We're certainly not obeying our King. If we're not fulfilling the great commission, we're just, I love what my mentor, former mentor, Bob Dukes used to say all the time when I was a college student in his ministry. He said, if we're not fulfilling the great commission, we're just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. We can make this thing called the church look really good all the while ignoring the fact that it's sinking and people are going to hell while we rearrange the furniture. Or we can engage with a great commission. We fear authority that we don't have in our flesh. So when we come to Christ, he deputizes us and we operate in his authority and we live in his character. And this opens the door for us to operate in his authority and see the mission completed here on earth. Amen. Are you with me? Okay, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these moments we have to be in your word together. I pray that you would uh, continue to work in us. Being in authority requires learning to be under authority. And your word says that you learned obedience while you were incarnated on the earth. If if we're going to lead our families, if we're going to lead your church, Father, we recognize we have to submit to the authority you've placed over us, to submit and obey to the Great Commission. And we want to be a model as a church, as Christians, for others. Uh, So help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray. We ask the Holy Spirit to just come in these moments as we worship. Show us again any places where we're falling short of what you've called us to. Uh, Lord, encourage us and, and press us forward, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We typically fear authority when we're not the one wielding it. But Jesus gives us an example. He's a king over all creation with more power and authority than we can even imagine. Yet he chose the path of a servant, the path of humility. Remember these things as you go back into the world this afternoon and this week. Choose to live like Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been delegated to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples who make disciples and do all things to the glory of God. Make him known to your neighbors in the nations. A Road Church, you are sent.